You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. I'm honored. Like, I'm honored to be here. I really, really am. This, like what's happening right now, is special and is rare. And I'm not talking about chapel. I'm talking about the fact that you are in the midst of a community of people. The men and women on your left and your right, in front of you and behind you, that is rare, that is special. They say, and I don't know who they is, but they say, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. Many years ago, I had an experience like this. In my 30s now, I realize how rare and how special living on a campus where you have time and proximity to people who are after what you're after, who care about what you care about, who are for Christ, who are for the kingdom, and are for you. That is rare, and that is special. And in the midst of all of this, if we miss that, man, you miss one of the greatest gifts that our Lord and Savior has for us, and it's the gift of one another. And the enemy wants to take that gift from you. The enemy wants to turn that gift of God into an annoyance, into a nuisance, into a frustration, into loneliness, into isolation, into depression. And he can win so often. But this is a gift. You, for one another, is a tremendous gift. You see, this this university... It does not exist so that they can take tuition and give you a diploma. No, it exists so that it can participate in the formation of your soul and your heart so you look more and more like Jesus after every class, after every conversation with a professor or an administrator, and after especially if it's one year or if it's six, it exists to help participate and facilitate the development of your soul to be aligned with your maker. This is special, and this is rare. And my whole sermon really in one sentence would be this. I want to challenge and encourage you today to deeply understand that you, both as individuals and as a community, significantly participate in the formation of one another. Because God wants his love to go to you, directly to you, as a son or a daughter. He sees you, he loves you, he values you, and he desires for his love to impact you in transformative ways. But also this, he wants his love in you to move through you to all of you. So it wasn't, it wasn't too long ago that I stepped into a new season of life, a new role, new people that I worked with, new relationships that I was forming, and we all experience newness differently, right? Like, some people, they step into newness, and their MO is, is quietness, and to investigate their environment and the people, 
so that they know how to interact. For others, it's to make an impression. I'm the latter. And so I come into a new environment, man, and, and my, my weight and my burden is to prove myself. What I feel I need to do is to prove, man, I could go through a big list, but the, the top ones, my competence, that I'm capable. Like, hey, I'm here, I'm new, I'm capable, I can do this. And I want to show everybody that that, that is true. And it was in that season of newness and trying to prove myself that the Lord, man, grabbed a hold of me and showed me something about myself that I was not, I was not aware of. So when I was new in my role as the college pastor of our church, I started to form some plans, and there were some people who were telling me about kind of the timeline of these things, and man, they're going to they're gonna be excited when, when they hear about these plans. When these plans come, there's going to be good things, there's going to be good changes, and, and I was thrilled too, because I was like, you know, we don't make plans unless we believe in them, right? And so I'm getting excited for this, and there was one afternoon where I'm meeting with my team, and we're really just adding the finishing touches to all these things, Right? It's almost the equivalent of like you're about to submit your paper. You're just like rereading it, but it's glorious, right? It's a great paper. Then in the midst of this meeting, my phone starts blowing up. My laptop, which is open, emails start coming through. And in the course of about 20 minutes, numerous people who conversations had be had with them about partnering with us in one way or another, and they were excited, and they were thrilled, and the plan was going to be executed, and they were going to be a part of that plan. Each person, all unconnected to each other, gave very legitimate and very specific reasons why they had committed too early, and they had to back out. And I found myself in the midst of this. I don't know if you've been there, but when you see your plans that you're proud of start to come unraveled and like crash around you, everybody will handle that differently. In that moment, it was the first time in my life that I had a panic attack. And I would have self-described myself for most of my adult life as, man, things don't get to me. <laughs> like, I'm good. It hits me. It rolls off. It's fine. There's always plan B. Like, but I was just uniquely in a time of life and in a place where, my goodness, my ability to do this or do that or to know this or to know that. And then when all of a sudden it wasn't, I just know the experience of my, my, my heart pounding out of my chest, not being able to catch your breath. And I held it together enough to where, like, my team that I worked with, they, they weren't like, oh, my goodness, what's happening to Caleb? But I was able to excuse myself and kind of came back into the meeting and, like, like, wrapped up the meeting, but, like, the heart continuing to pound, like, my breath not kind of returning in, in a way that made sense. And it continued the rest of the day. I got home to my family. My kids, who are, who are eight and five, could tell, like, Daddy's distracted. My wife asked if I was okay, and I said, I'm fine. <laughs> it was heading into the weekend, so all weekend, my heart rate barely went down to normal. And anytime I thought about the thing that had gone wrong that I did not have a solution to, I started to lose my breath again. And it wasn't until three days later, 72 hours later, my wife and I put our children to bed, and my wife sat down next to me on the couch, and she looked at me with grace and just said, whatever it is, you, you can tell me what's going on. 
And so in that moment with my wife, who I know loves me, and I know I can trust her, I start to unpack. I think I had a panic attack for the first time ever. And she listened, and she heard me. She said, I love you, this is okay, this doesn't define you. And then she said this, why don't you talk to someone tomorrow? And I was like, oh yeah, I go back to work tomorrow, oh my gosh. Why don't you talk to somebody tomorrow? So I went to a meeting, and afterwards I'm walking out of this meeting with one of my closest friends, Chandler. We're walking into the parking lot to our cars, and I'm, I'm, you know those things where it's like, do I tell them? Do I not? I don't want to bother, you know that feeling? And he just goes, how are you, bro? And I felt that tension of like, it's so easy to go, fine. (laughs) I went, not good, man. He goes, come sit in my truck. And we sat in the front seat of a 1998 Ford F-150 and talked for about 45 minutes where he just asked and listened, spoke truth over me, pointed me to Jesus, prayed for me, said, hey man, you should probably talk to someone who can really, really help with this. So later that day, I, I sent an email to a counselor, said, hey, I'm dealing with some stuff I've never dealt with before. Can, can I talk to you? I don't really know how this works. He said, absolutely, please come to my office. So the next day, I'm in a counseling office, sitting across the room from a man named Chris, who asked me about me and my life and my heart and my faith and my story. And as we talked, I started to break down, because this is what I realized. It had been so long, so long, since I had allowed myself to be in a position where I was vulnerable enough for someone to love me and minister to me. I had not created space or opportunity for that. Not at all. And through a conversation with my wife and a conversation with one of my best friends and a conversation with a stranger who grew to love me and know me as he heard my story, I experienced, I experienced the love of God in incredibly relational and tangible ways through his people. People who were already in my life, but I was not inviting them in. And since that experience, the Lord has been showing me some significant things about my life and what he has for me. And I think the same things are true for you, uniquely different in some ways, but objectively still true. And one of the first things that he showed me was this. There's a passage in 1 Corinthians. It's in chapter 8, and the book of Corinthians is incredible, because you've got a lot from the Apostle Paul who wrote this letter to a church in Corinth, and there's a lot that he's addressing where he's like, yo, that is not how we as a community live in Jesus. But then there's also a lot of things that he affirms. So he's not just saying, don't do that. He's also saying, do this. And you get this this juxtaposition of warnings and commands. And in chapter 8, you find this, this beautiful picture right here where Paul is talking about community and how we in the midst of a complex community, which, shocker, we don't always agree with each other. Shocker, we don't always see eye to eye. Shocker, it's really easy to dismiss people because they don't have the same value markers we do. And in the midst of the potential for a community that can disagree with one another, Paul says this to the heart of a Christian. Knowledge, knowledge it can puff up. But love, love can build up. Knowledge is not bad in any way, shape, or form. But if we replace the necessity of love by pursuing as though it were like essential knowledge can leave us in a bad place and it's where I was. And I want to unpack for you just for a moment this idea of being puffed up with knowledge 
When I first hear that, I think about like arrogance and pride, don't you? Like you think about the person like puffed up with pride. It, it does mean that in the original language. It, it has the connotation where that is true, but it's more complex than that and more beautiful than that. The warning of Paul is this, to be puffed up with knowledge, to know things, to know things about God, to know things about the kingdom, to know things about yourself, to know things about your field, to know information, it can puff you up in this sort of way. A balloon gets inflated with air. And it gets bigger. And it gets bigger. Until all of a sudden it has, visible to all, mass. But very little substance. It occupies space, but it doesn't handle weight well. Thus was my life. And thus is the temptation for us, particularly, and I'll talk to you who are in a season of undergraduate school, where the temptation of knowledge is my value, GPA is my value, grade on my project is my value, that before you realize that you can align your very self-worth and your identity with a metric system of grades, with the reciprocal effect of, of seeing, well, th this must be what I'm worth because it says it right here in this paper. Knowledge is not wrong, but if it is the thing that undergirds our, our identity, we are a balloon puffed with air. We may look in appearance to be large, but as soon as pressure in life, and life does come, it's inevitable, it will deflate us very quickly. But the opposite is this. It's love builds up. Love doesn't puff up, love builds up. In the original Greek, the connotation here for build up is, is this picture of, of, of architecture being constructed, right? To go from nothing to something. Love can take you from nothing to something. But it also, because these words mean so much, it, it has this beautiful picture. It's not just going from nothing to something, but it's this picture of build. It's the dilapidated house that would not be safe to live in. And then loving craftsmen do work on that house, and it goes from an unsafe thing to a beautiful place to live life. Through a loving community, that can be us. Love can build you up. Love can heal you. Love can shape you. Love can mold you. Love can move you from the brokenness that we all have and possess and experience and into a wholeness and a healing and a calling and a purpose and an identity that is the fingerprints of God all over you. And so you don't walk in fear. You don't walk in insecurity. You aren't riddled with those things who hold you back, but you have freedom because you experienced God's love to you, but also through his people, to you. Sometimes we, we get in these places where, yes, the love of God can work in mysterious ways, absolutely. Sometimes he works in the most simple of ways. Through the voice of your friend. Through an embrace at the right time. Through an encouraging word where, when we're believing lies. And my call and my challenge to all of you guys would be simply this is to know that the desire of Jesus, like the desire of his heart, is that his love would move to you for your good, but also through you for their good. We don't hold on to those good things. We don't hoard them, but we let them move through us. I want to read again Philippians chapter 2, which was so beautifully read earlier. You did a great job reading that. Good job. I want to walk you through this, and I want you to do this as I read. 
I want you not with, not with a lens of shame, but with a lens of God can give you the gift of seeing and recognizing yourself. And hear me when I say this, not a lens of shame. We have enough in our life where we know we fall short and we're reminded often. That's not the lens. But a lens of how can I walk with Jesus more faithfully? How can I imitate him more faithfully? For us to be filled with a heart of courage and challenge, not a heart of shame and, oh, here's more areas where I'm failing. So as I read this, I want you to think about your life in relation to your community here. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Therefore, if you, that's us, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, do you have encouragement from knowing that your very soul is in union with the Lord of the universe, the creator of your very existence? In moments of loneliness, are you encouraged by that truth? If any comfort from his love. When you hurt, do you think of his love? Do you echo those truths in your mind and in your heart to remind you of who you are in him and not what the lies of the enemy of the world may say? Are you reminded of his love? If any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion that you share in the spirit, like I get ministered to you by you guys. Like even up here with the band, I said, hey, you guys are going to crush it. And one of the vocalists, she goes, the Holy Spirit's going to crush it. I was like, that's true. <laughs> You're right. We have a sharing with the Spirit, that we are in union with the Holy Spirit in us. And so here is the command from that. Be like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, and then this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. The, the connotation there, this is this beautiful but challenging picture. Vain conceit, selfish ambition, both of those words in the original language are, were often translated as political campaign. Those words were interchangeable. So if you plug that in, do not campaign for yourself. Unfortunately, we're too familiar with political campaigns, are we not? Vote for me, because this is all of my good, and they're always dismissive of any negative they bring to the table, and then they throw mud at their opposition. Many of us, in the context of community, we live by the principle of scarcity, and we think that we have to campaign for ourselves so that we get what we feel like we need, and we have to diminish the value of others so that we are chosen and not them. And we live out of that place, and we diminish one another's worth, and then that diminishing worth is then returned to us because we're functioning not out of Christ, but out of something else. Have no selfish ambition. Do not campaign for yourself, but instead campaign on behalf of others. Point out the value in others. Can we live that way? In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. That God knowing, Christ knowing the authority that he possessed, as having the authority because of who he was, he didn't use any power or any authority to benefit himself, but instead he came to serve. Is that how you live on this campus? Is that how you are with your roommates? Is that how you are with your teammates? Is that how you are in a, like a, a project where you're working collaboratively? Do we live that way? Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. It says, be imitators of Christ. And to take the very words of Jesus, which is this, this microcosm of all of Scripture and the charge of the gospel found in John chapter 15, where Jesus sat with his closest friends, and he says this, my command I give you, love one another as I've loved you. One of the most significant things from the mouth of Jesus. What does it mean to be a Christ follower? To love as you've been loved. To receive and then to give. To have love to you and then love through you. Love to you and then love through you. To be transformed by his love and then participate in the loving of your brothers and sisters so they experience the same glorious grace you have. That is what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to participate in this gift of one another. It's beautiful, but it's hard. And so I want to give you three very specific examples of Jesus loving, of Jesus being, and I want to challenge you to imitate him for one another. I'll go through this quick. The first example of Jesus is this. It's found in John chapter 21. It's Jesus restoring his friend Peter who had betrayed him. The narrative very quickly is this, is that about three years previous, Jesus was doing ministry in Galilee, and he saw a group of fishermen. He got to know them. He spent time with them. They began to know and understand who he was, that he was significant. He was a prophet. He was a leader. And, and with them, he participated in this miracle. It's the miraculous catch of fish where their minds were blown because they're fishermen that caught nothing. But then Jesus spoke a word, told them where to put their nets, and their nets were overwhelmed. And then he looked at Peter and said, Peter, come and follow me. But in that moment, Peter, it, Scripture says he falls on his knees. He says, depart from me because I'm a sinful man. Do you have a complex of your own sin where you disqualify yourself daily because you know what you've done and you know where you've been and you know who you are? And most of your interactions with Jesus are depart from me because I'm unworthy? Well, know that in that moment, Jesus looked at him and said, no, come, I'll make you fishers of men. Where he said, not only do I want you, but I want to work with you. They're together for years. He walks with Jesus. He learns from Jesus. And then upon Jesus' arrest, many of you know the story. He's taken before the Sanhedrin. Peter is the only one of the followers. They ran off, but he returned. And so he went to pursue Jesus, but he was confronted. And three times he denied his closest friend. I don't even know him. He lied on behalf of his own safety and betrayed Jesus. And when he realized what he'd done, he ran away in shame. And here's, here's the thing. He didn't seek restoration with Jesus. He'd already, he thought he'd gone too far. Here's the example of Jesus I want you to imitate. Jesus pursued Peter to restore their relationship. Some of you in this room are in the midst of relationships either having come unraveled or they're beginning to. And you don't know what to do, but you know you're hurt. And in the context of that hurt, this is what people often do. I'll move when they move. I'll forgive when they forgive. I'll restore when they restore. And what you have is two people, or three people, or a group, unwilling to move until someone else is moving. My charge to you to imitate Christ would be this. Move towards them to forgive and restore. The enemy will fragment your community and can harm all the things that God is building up in you because of a simple grudge, because of hurt feelings, and because of in our mind, well, they betrayed me, so it's on them. 
to figure out their wrong. Jesus pursued Peter. And in John chapter 21, what you see is this this beautiful picture of Jesus recreating a miraculous catch of fish where where Peter is is fishing, and and theologians think Peter had returned to fishing for this reason, because I can't follow Jesus anymore. So I might as well go back to what my life was like before him. And Jesus reaffirms to him the calling and the friendship. And when Peter recognizes, once again, the miracle of the catch of fish, he goes, there's Jesus. He's come for me. He jumps out of the boat. He swims to them. They have a meal together. And Jesus affirms three times by asking, do you love me? And the theological connotation there is, is I'm giving you the opportunity to say it because I know it's still true. And I want our relationship to be this. And he affirmed his love three times because three times he betrayed Jesus. And then he said, your calling is still there. Would you fight for restoration? Would you be Christ-like and forgive those who have hurt you to move towards them, to own the part you played? And don't seek to forgive someone by pointing out, here's the 75 things you did to me yesterday. I'm going to name them, and, uh, and then I'm going to let you know I forgave you. Go to them in grace. Be a restorer like Christ. Second thing, I'll go quicker through these. John chapter 13 at the Last Supper, where Jesus is gathering for a very important meal where they'll dine together for Passover, but where Jesus will also start to explain part of his plan for the kingdom that's coming and his death and his resurrection and all of that. And and scripture says this in John chapter 13, that Jesus realized that the Father had placed all authority on him. He knew the authority he had. Therefore, he wrapped a towel around his waist And he knelt down, and with a basin of water, he washed the dirty feet of his friends who considered him their leader. If if you think that your talent, your giftedness, your scholarship, your position, your internship, your possibility for employment, your relationship status, your appearance, your IQ, your GPA, means that other people should wrap the towel around their waist and serve you. You've got the kingdom of God wrong. You've got Jesus wrong. You've got the call that he would place on you wrong. In Christ, those who are great serve all. Would you serve one another well? Would you take out the trash? Would you clean up the classroom? Would you give your friend shotgun? (laughs) Would you pay for someone's meal? Would you do good without expecting anyone to notice it? Be like Christ in that way. And lastly this, and then I'll close. Mark chapter 14. This is the conclusion of the Last Supper. And Jesus and his disciples, they go to a garden called Gethsemane. Jesus knows that this is kind of the beginning of the end leading up to the cross. And then Jesus does, these are two things I want to point out. One, he looks at his friends and he says this. He says, Will you come with me and pray? Like Jesus, the strong one, takes the position of humility and said, would you, who love me, would you come and pray with me? Not just for me, but with me. Do you you see the difference? Sometimes we're like, hey, bro, would you pray for me? Yeah, what's going on? Just some stuff. Yeah, cool. That's fine. Would you be a community of people that goes to someone and with sincerity and humility and honestly say, I am in need of a friend who will go to the battlefield of prayer with me. There's something significant about that. And then in his prayer, this. This is the moment where Jesus, knowing the cross is coming, prays this prayer. Father, 
would you take this cup from me? Essentially saying, if there's any other way for the redemption of the world without the pain and the shame and the suffering, I ask now than this, but not my will. Your will be done. Are we even praying if we don't include not my will, but your will be done? If our heart does not have that disposition of Jesus, if it doesn't have that posture that Jesus holds, are we actually praying or are we just requesting? Are we vending machining the Lord? We can ask. We're his children. We can ask for anything. But he wants us to have a heart that says, the way this works is not for my will to be thrust upon the Lord of the universe, but for my very life to be conformed to his purposes and his will. And if we live that way, if we pray that way, if we believe that that is the truth that we submit to, you will look at your roommate differently. Because some of y'all got a difficult roommate. <laughs> Don't look at him. Some of you guys may be really frustrated with your professor for whatever reason. And I would encourage you to be a man or a woman who humbly prays, Lord, in the midst of all these things that I'm asking for, would you mold my heart to be faithful enough to say your will in this situation? Because maybe you want to teach me something through this difficulty. And what you'll start to see is a transformation, not of your campus, but of you, and thus your campus. I'll end with this. The desire of Jesus is that his love would move to you for your good and through you for their good.